Old Man Winter here. If I had it my way, it would stay winter all year long. Short days, wind chill, black ice and a good polar vortex. Oh, <laughs> heaven. Wait, is it getting warm in here? Your cold snap is over, Old Man Winter. Spring has arrived. Spring. Spring is here, which means it's the perfect time to get away in the Hyundai you've always wanted. Visit the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event, where you can get great deals on all of our award-winning Hyundai models, like the tech-filled Tucson and Kona, as well as the spacious Palisade. Enjoy wherever you go with the peace of mind that comes with America's best warranty and three years or 36,000 miles of complimentary maintenance. But hurry in. These deals won't last. Add more joy to your journey at the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Now get 0% APR or up to 1,500 bonus cash on the Hyundai Tucson. Now, during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Offers end soon. Call 562-314-4603 for details. The Mount Rushmore of Broadcasting. He's not on it, but he's on this podcast. Welcome to the Jim Day Podcast. Hello, hello again, podcast world. Thanks for clicking on the Jim Day podcast as we try to grow this bad boy. And we ask you to invite others to subscribe to this podcast. I have a lot of subscriptions already, a lot of downloads. We appreciate that. And once again, particularly if you're listening on iTunes, uh, can we ask you a favor? Just go on there if you like what you hear. A five-star rating would be so, so nice. A lot of you have done that. We appreciate it. It will help the growth and the future of this podcast. We invite you to follow along with me on Instagram and Twitter. At Jim Day TV is the handle on there. And, of course, follow the Reds on all the social media outlets and check out Reds.com on a daily basis. All right, we got another treat today. We're going back in time, and uh, we'll have some stories told by Mr. Perfect Tom Browning. In fact, we are in search of the perfect podcast here today. Well, I don't know. We've set the bar high, but speaking of Mr. Perfect, he actually cringes at being called Mr. Perfect. Why? You're about to find out. A text from Johnny Bench that he had to show everyone a breathtaking moment he had with the Big Red Machine and how he lived a childhood dream through actually a softball game. And, of course, we'll take you down memory lane, the vivid memories of that perfect game and how the final out ball from that perfect game was lost. Yeah, it was lost in a very unique way. And how Joe Nuxall nearly knocked himself out after the perfect game. Classic story. What Marge Schott bought after his perfect game. And after that, she wanted to put a clause in his contract that MLB would not allow. What are we talking about? You're about to find out. And of course, we're going to go down memory lane uh, with some Lou Pinella stories, some classic Lou Pinella stories. And they're always classic when you're talking about sweet Lou, including the first, and I didn't know this, the first time he met Lou Pinella, he happened to be golfing with Pete Rose. And here is Lou Pinella coming in and replacing Pete Rose. And it was the first time they were meeting after that. And it was a very awkward situation that Lou diffused. How did he do it? Well, we're going to get into that as well, including the kick the turkey story with Lou and general memories of that 1990 team. What a year 1990 was. Wire to wire season that ended up with a World Series championship and so many characters on that team, including the guy we're about to talk to. And 
He is known for a lot of things. One, that perfect game, of course. And two, during that World Series, he was called back during game two. His wife went into labor and was actually called back to the stadium. So we'll relive that uh, moment for moment of how that happened on that night. And, of course, he might be most well-known for his trip to the rooftop at Wrigley Field and how it happened by accident. Beautiful story. And speaking of Joe Nuxall, <laughs> this one makes me laugh, and you're just going to have to stay tuned to what I'm laughing at, but how he almost dropped Joe Nuxall laughing on a caravan stop. And I'll just let him tell the story on that one. And Joe Nuxall, Mr. Nice Guy, well, he had a little tirade on the golf course one day. And Tom Browning will talk about that. Tom Browning, one of our favorite guys, uh, not only a terrific pitcher, a terrific storyteller, and one of those pitchers, man, he is a broadcaster you just love because he would fire the ball. He'd get the ball and just fire it. He worked quickly. He threw strikes. He trusted his defense. He gave up some home runs because of it. But just a solid, solid pitcher. And again, a guy that doesn't have the blazing fastball, had to outthink you, had to outwork you, and movement on the pitch, man, that's that's everything. So a classic and dare I say perfect visit with Tom Browning here in the Gym Day Podcast. Tom Browning, welcome to the Gym Day Podcast. Thank you. It's good to be here. Uh, is this a first this is very first ever ever podcast into the podcast world yeah it's uh interesting you know i've had people talk to me about doing it and uh, i'm a little shy about it so i don't know but uh we'll see glad to break the ice in the in the podcast uh world appreciate it nowadays let's uh let's start with what what's going on nowadays you go across the river from the stadium and there sits Browning's on York, yeah. yeah. I, I bought a bar uh, last March. Uh, we had opening day. Uh, it was our opening day. Mm-hmm. It got rained out, uh, so we got rained out. We still were open, but we didn't really count it as opening day. And then uh, when the Reds played eventually on the Friday, uh, we had a ribbon cutting. Uh, it was our best day of the year. It was just packed, and people were excited. And uh, I would have to say it was kind of short-lived because when they went into the tank, so did our so did our customers. So, but uh, we're looking forward to a great year this year, yeah. and obviously we're we're excited about opening day as well. Was it like being a bartender? You are, are owning a bar. Are you actually behind the bar working, or? I started out there a little bit. Uh, my son Tucker, who was very rehearsed in the bar business, uh, after the first day. Uh, kind of kicked me out and said no we're afraid you'll give away too much stuff for free so i i'm just kind of like a mannequin you know I, i'm in it and to be honest i'm i'm uh i'm probably better out out and with the public because i like getting yeah. out amongst the fans and you know take a lot of pictures and uh you know so i i'm there uh, my wife and i bartend on sundays but she does the bartending and i just kind of do all the other stuff that needs to be done during during the business hours so so you're in there a lot so fans come in there i mean not only are you going to get some good uh, beverages etc but they they meet you yeah yeah and, it, and it's it's kind of neat i enjoy it uh, i've always enjoyed being amongst the fans mm-hmm. uh you know did a lot of things throughout my career and even after my career just uh, where i get out there amongst them right. and, and they you know they like to hear stories and they like to tell stories and they like to tell me where they were at on the night of my perfect game and and what we would look like in the World Series and how excited they were. So, uh, yeah, I like it on that side of the bar because I can actually consume alcohol too. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> but you don't want to drink away the profits. Correct, correct. Well, I, I pay for my beer, so. Uh, what? Yeah, well, I'm not all of them, but I pay for some of them. I don't ever, wow. I don't go in there and drink it all and walk out and not pay anything. Just, <laughs> I feel terrible. Well, there you go. Well, speaking of which, when, when fans come up to you and say, hey, I was at the perfect game, but. When you look back, it was after a long rain delay. The crowd was, had thinned out, and it, it's amazing. It seems like there are thousands and thousands more that say they were there that weren't actually yeah, there. Yeah, well, I've, I've come across a lot of them. I trust that they were being honest. Uh, you know, I know there was like 16,000 tickets sold that night. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was probably 5,000 by the end of the night. Uh, I will say this, in the ninth inning, it, it sounded like a full house because it was just the energy there. Uh but after the game was over, Danny Jackson gave me a bottle of champagne, and I tell people I got every single fan wet. So <laughs> <laughs> that uh, you know, being Mister Perfect, uh, you're well, you, you cringed at that. Yeah. You, you don't like the name, or it's a hard moniker to live up to. And don't ask my wife. She said I've been per- I was perfect for an hour and fifty two minutes of my life. So, uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's it's a moniker that's hard to live up to. At the same time, hard to live up to. But a lot of players will come and kind of fade into, you know, into people not thinking about them, whatever. But how far do you think it's gone in your retirement from baseball that you're Mr. Perfect? I mean, it's really elevated you, whereas a lot of guys are forgotten about by now. Well, I, I think, and I'm, I'm just guessing, but I'm assuming because that's the only one in Red's history. Yeah. And, and that really only comes to play, I think, in Cincinnati or the greater Cincinnati area. Mm-hmm. Although I did uh, – a thing for South Dearborn County the other day. I spoke at a, they had a fundraiser there. And uh, so the Reds country is very deep reaching. You know, right. I've actually been in uh, Tennessee and, and they're bringing out a lot of fans and, uh, you know, but I, again, I, I'm, I'm, I'm an approachable guy. At least I try to be an approachable guy. Mm-hmm. So I don't want people to feel, you know, intimidated by coming up and talk to me because I'm pretty laid back most of the time. So, uh, but I think in the general Cincinnati area, I'm, 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 known as mr perfect or at least that's the moniker i get uh no well, that's how you're introduced man that's- oh yeah i know well yeah he needs no introduction Ooh, yeah but yeah. Uh, uh, uh the cool thing is is that johnny bench calls me perfect you know and, does he really yeah and that's and and, and he, now that's cool oh it's great you know and i, I and then uh, i got a text from him and i'd never heard, got a text from johnny bench before and uh the text said hey perfect this is five you know, so oh, that is fantastic. Oh yeah, I, I mean, it just—I had to show everybody I could. I said, "Look at this. This guy calls me perfect." You know, and I hey, said, perfect. This is five. That's yeah. beautiful. Oh, it's awesome. I do. No. I mean, just you know, because the the uh, the Reds of the '70s were 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 my team as a kid yeah. growing up. My teenage years, '75, '76. You know, they just—I uh, was in hog heaven because I I know how when in '72 happened and '70 happened, right. and then they came back and won and. They got so close, you know, a couple times and didn't win. Uh, and then they finally got on top and won in 75, 76. And those guys made a very big impression on me. And then when I got to the Cincinnati Reds and Davey Concepcion and Pete and Tony and Ken Griffey were there, uh, I felt blessed that I got to be a part of that. You know, I got to know them and I consider them friends. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, I sometimes have to remind myself, you know, gosh, you get to hang out with these guys and Joe Morgan as well, too. Cause Joe and I have been pretty, uh, became pretty good friends over the years, too. So, well, I grew up idolizing th- that team and uh, I still pinch myself. I mean, you know, when, when Joe Morgan says, hey, Jim, you know, it's like, 
Well, wow. I I, I, I used to walk name. I, I used to walk name. up to Joe Morgan all the time. Even yeah. my playing day when I was playing, and Joe would show up. I'd say, "Hey, Joe Morgan, Tom Brown," and he said, "I know who you are." But you know, I just never assumed that he would, because you know, those guys were icons. You know, I yeah. just uh, I mean, I was almost afraid to talk to him. And then when they came and talked to me, I said, "Oh, wow, that's kind of cool. They know who I am." And you know, because I never put myself on, on in the you know in that category or with those kind of guys because they they were you know probably the greatest team ever to play. Yeah. Uh, uh, so whenever, you know, they came up and talked to me, I felt privileged. Oh, I, I still feel yeah. the same way. Absolutely. I mean, even guys like, um, Lee May, God rest his soul. Um, uh, I was, when I first started working at Fox, um, uh, I was walking by him and he goes, Hey, how you going to walk by Lee May and not say, Hey, <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, me? He's like, yeah, Jim Day. I'm like, oh my goodness! I didn't yeah. know you know who I was, so I was like blown away. Well, I got like he that. coached on a, a couple you know, for a couple of years when I was in Cincinnati too. So I'll tell you what, that was a funny, funny man. Yeah, uh, he was fun to be around, and I did fantasy camp with him uh, along with Jack Billingham, and those two guys used to go at it each day. They were so entertaining, you know, and. Lee May said, yeah, Jack, I must have hit 10 home runs off you. And then Jack left, went out to his car, brought in the stats, all his stats, and said, it says here you hit one home run off me. And he said, yeah, I hit it so far that it should have counted for five. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, you know, just listen to those guys. I'll say, when we had – remember they played the last game at Riverfront? Yeah. Uh, well, Pete, Pete uh, the softball game we played? Right. Uh, I got to start that game. And – I went out there on the mound, and I looked, and I had Johnny Bench behind home plate, Tony Perez at first, Joe at second, Davey at short, Pete was at third, George was in left, uh, Cesar wasn't there, so Eric played center, and then Griffey was in right. And uh, That's crazy. I just, I, I kind of did a pirouette. I just kind of spun around and just looked at it all. I said, oh, my God, I'm living my childhood dream, you know? And that then, gives me goosebumps just right now. Oh, yeah. Well, and on. then I gave up a base hit. Uh, I did give up nine home runs in that game, but I, you know, it was a softball, softball game. game. Yeah, but I remember I gave up a base hit, and anytime you give up a base hit uh, from the mound, you always looked at second base to see who you got if it balls hit back to you, whether right. you got the shortstop. And, and and Joe patted on his chest like that, you got me on a ground ball, and I just, uh, you know, it was just cool. I couldn't believe it, so it was awesome. <laughs> That's outstanding. I mean, it's it's good that you appreciate. I mean, you're. You're a legend in Reds country. I mean, maybe, you know, the big red machine is up here at this level, oh, yeah. but you are like one notch below. So for you to to still be so humble and realize moments like that is really cool to me. Well, I mean, I appreciate that. And and I never, you know, I, I, I think I still find it hard to believe. You know, I, whenever I walk out, and, like I go to the grocery, I go to Kroger and shopping, you know, and people say hey to you, you know, you just kind of, you never expect, I mean, I never expected it to be a household name or, or, but it's nice to be recognized, but, you know, sometimes you have to, you know, I never really ever put myself in that category. But uh, but now, you know, if I'm like, I, I remember Larry Starr, who was a trainer for the three World Series mm-hmm. that we had. Uh, he came to the ballpark one day, and I said, and we had to go down the right field line on the concourse or somewhere down past the uh, right field line. I said, come on, Larry, we'll, I'll go with you. And he, and he said, well, how are you going to go? I said, we'll just walk down the concourse. He said, really? I said, heck yeah, I don't care. I said, I'll just keep my head down. We'll just kind of walk. But, you know, I'm not afraid to get amongst those people. You know, you just kind of keep walking. And uh, and I, I found it, it kind of humorous that he thought, man, you can't walk out here. And I said, oh, I do it all the time, you know. Yeah. Uh, but that's just who I am. I don't, I don't ever – uh, you know, it's certainly being being a Cincinnati Red, throwing a perfect game, world champion, uh, has afforded me a lot of things. You know, I got a key to the city for my perfect game. Uh, that was cool. 
I, I do remember when uh, after the perfect game because it was on a Friday night, and Good Morning America called David Hartman and Joan London. I knew they were on the show, oh, and they asked me if I London. could be. On, oh yeah, she she <laughs> yes, I did too. But uh, they asked if I would go on the show on Monday morning, and they said, "Oh yeah, that'd be awesome." You know, I mean, I said, "Okay." He said, "Well, you, they want you on at six o'clock." So I, they said, "If you don't mind getting there a little bit early, in case we got to do something, you know, put some makeup on me or something." I don't know what they wanted to do. So you know, I was kind of excited about it, and I got there a little after five, and they said, you know, told me all the things I needed to do, and they said they got you going on at like six o five, and I said, okay. So I went on there at six o five, and I think at six o five forty five seconds into it, I was off, and I went, <laughs> "No way!" I said, "I got up that early to come yeah. over to do this, and I was on there for forty seconds." So, but it was, it was, you know, again, it was awesome, and uh, you know, I love the city of Cincinnati. I love, it. even though I live in Kentucky, and the reason I live in Kentucky is because the airport was there. You know, when my wife and I got there, she said, "Why don't we live over here?" Because the airport's over here. So I did, and and actually, it was probably was probably closer to. Uh, downtown than anywhere you know because a lot of guys lived out in blue ash and well it's considered the greater cincinnati area right, anyway right. there's just a river and a border that's yeah, in that's the it. middle of it that's it but it's all one happy community but oh yeah yeah so a tough moniker to live up to mr perfect all right no pressure we, we were looking for a perfect podcast oh it has a ring to it oh, perfect yeah. podcast for mr perfect that's in the future so, i think <laughs> so, uh, no, no pressure uh that that night um the perfect game night how uh how much do you vividly remember moments during the rain delay during the game or has some of it faded or is it it's oh still, there's still certain vivid. parts i think as it gets further away you know you some things just you kind of forget about things and 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 actually it took me probably i guess probably 10 years or more it was about 10 years where i finally saw the first time the broadcast you know because the first i think six innings were done from the house cameras from like uh, the upper deck and yeah and then after the sixth inning i think the side cameras came on uh so it really wasn't on tv although i've had plenty of people tell me you know i, I watched it on tv and i you know and i'm i try to be polite and say well you know it appreciate that. I, 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 I appreciate that but yeah and in the back of my mind I'm saying you know it wasn't yeah. on tv so uh i remember going out there because i went and on days that I pitched, uh, I had a pretty good routine. You know, very superstitious, I suppose. I, you know, I drank iced tea. I didn't drink coffee because they told me iced tea had more caffeine. So I always drank. I always stopped by Frisch's down on uh, 3L Highway and pick up two 32-ounce things of iced tea. A ritual. Every yeah. time you started? Every time. Well, every home game. And because and, I met a yeah. lady that worked there, and she says, Tom, we always knew when you were pitching because you'd always stop in and get the iced tea. And I oh, said, oh, cool. yeah. So I, I, I got down there and uh, – you know, and then I remember walking. I, if it was a 7.35 game, I was in the dugout at 7 o'clock. Mm -hmm. And I waited. And at 7.15, I walked down the bullpen, stretched, whatever, and then I started warming up. Uh, and I went out there at 7 o'clock uh, just, just to see because that was kind of my routine. And, and it was just – it was like Niagara Falls over the dugout. It was just pouring so hard. And uh, Timmy Belcher was actually on the other, in, the other, uh, in the other dugout doing the same thing. I don't know if it was his routine, but uh, we kind of tipped our caps to each other. Of course, he tipped his cap to me because the last time he faced me, it hit a home run off me. Uh, but then I went inside, and, and, you know, but when it got to be 930, which is two hours, which is what the, the limit is if it's arranged for two hours after the original start, they usually postpone it. So I started getting undressed, and a ground crew guy came in and said, hey, we got a window. We're going at 10. And I said, oh, cool, you know, because I didn't want to have to wait another day to pitch. Uh, so I got dressed and went out there and uh, got, you know, did my thing and 
game went on, and you know, things, great things happened. And it was an incredibly fast game. Obviously, yeah. you were twenty-seven up, twenty-seven down. But Belcher, on the other side, I mean, it, it was an incredible night. We both really. took no hitters into the sixth. Yeah, he, 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 I think he walked somebody early in the game, but uh, we both had no hitters going into the sixth. I think the first, the five, first five innings took about. 45 minutes what a dream for a broadcaster oh oh, yeah yeah and that's including the commercials but uh you know it's i I, that was that was kind of the way i pitched though i was really quick i didn't waste much time uh oh i love that about you man you got it and fired yeah well i didn't want to have to think because then i'd probably make mistakes but you know that that was a cool thing because that was right down my alley that how quick that game went you know and then once i got it once i got into the seventh inning i got the retired the side in order that's when it became. Uh, that's when the pressure started showing up, and that's when you start losing. Did you your feel team. it? Did you feel the pressure? Well, yeah, I knew what I was doing, but yeah. you know what? The cool thing, or the motivation for me, was the Dodgers because I grew up hating the Dodgers. Uh, I love being Likewise. Tommy Lasorda. Yeah. yeah, so uh, I didn't need any extra motivation. But you know, once I got thrown through the seventh inning and, and the top of the order, you, you start losing your teammates because they kind of they don't want to rub up against you oh, or yeah, anything. They don't you know? Look so, at you. Yeah, they want to talk to you. You know, and, and at Riverfront. If you remember, when you're in our dugout, we were looking straight ahead at the scoreboard, mm-hmm. and I knew right. what was going on. But uh, you know, we scored a run in the, in the sixth, and and again, once I got to the through the seventh, then I kind of started uh, feeling it. But you know, you try to stay calm. I can promise you, uh, the ninth inning, my legs were gone. I, I I was I was like a pinball machine on the inside, but I was trying to stay calm on the really? in, on the outside. Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, because I used to pound the ball on my glove because I, I used to try to spin the ball to try to find the highest seams in, mm-hmm. for my screwball. And that's how I always put the ball on my glove with the screwball grip, and then I just spin it for the fastball. Uh, but I, I, I watched the video, and I could see I was rapid-fire spinning that ball. You know, that's how nervous I was. And then, you know, the cool thing is when, they, when uh, Tracy Woodson came up to be the 27th out, uh, I had faced Tracy in the minor leagues. I knew – how to get him out I, I knew what pitch he couldn't hit uh but i had to get ahead first i had to get to two strikes before i got to that before i could go to that pitch you know right. he, he didn't like that fastball i mean he loved the fastball up and in he just couldn't hit it uh so i i just tried to get to two strikes as quick as i could and i think i got a two two count well in fact i know because i had got one strike and then two balls uh and then he fouled off two two and I, I remember getting the ball walking behind the mound and i said okay here we are you know, I said, here's my pitch. And I said, That's, I knew where I was going with it and uh, was able to throw it where I needed to, and he swung and missed. And, you know, well, wonderful thing. My wife got a mink coat out of it. <laughs> she got a mink coat? Yeah, Marge brought, brought her to the park the next day and asked her to come on the field, and she handed me a stemmed rose. And they got a poster of it, the That's only poster right. I That's ever right. had. Okay. Yeah. But uh, I, And there's a picture of it. You know, she's putting the mink coat on, but I'm holding the stemmed rose. You know, and Marge said, are you okay with that, sweetie? I said, heck, yeah. Uh, after she got the mink coat, I said, yeah, now I don't have to buy her one. But, uh, you know, that was kind of cool. Of course, Marge was really great with the wives, and she took care yeah. of the wives. But uh, the cool thing is that she wanted to put a clause in my contract that if I threw another perfect game, that I would get a 300, my wife would get a $300,000 bonus. And I took a perfect game in the ninth inning the next year in yeah, Philadelphia. that's what I was going to say. Well, wow. I was just far from a perfect game because I remember Lenny Dykstra in the seventh inning hit a rocket up the middle, and I tried to get out of the way, and it actually hit my glove, and I ended up catching it. You know, But I think everybody in the outfield made a diving play. Lark probably went in the hole and made a great play. So, But I always wondered if that would have happened, if, 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 I'd, have done it, if I'd have done it again, if she would have given my wife a $300,000. Was, was it in the contract? No, they wouldn't let her do it. Major League Baseball wouldn't let her do it. So oh. it was kind of a but gentleman's she agreement. To put that in the contract. Yeah, That's yeah, wild. yeah. I thought that was kind of cool, you know. But uh, obviously, it didn't happen. But yeah. 
That would have been nice to be the only guy to throw two. Oh, absolutely. But, you know, that's baseball, man. Yeah. You, get, you said, well, it's far from a perfect game. Hey, they were catching the balls. So yeah. That's baseball. How many times have you been, you know, give up a blue pit and you're like, ah. Usually even yeah. Blue Usually home even. runs. <laughs> I always thought it was uh, cool, that perfect game. I mean, you were known as a contact pitcher. You strike out a ton of guys. I mean, you did, had your strikeouts. but the, the Yeah, the, I, strikeouts meant you had to throw at least – Three pitches, right. and I was that was my limit for for me in my mind. I wanted three pitches per hitter get to the next. Which guy. I love, yeah, that, yeah. That you trust your stuff, and that yeah. it's still a round bat and a round well, we, ball. We used to. It's have, hard to hit when they would bring teams in. New team would come in. You know, we'd have a pitchers meeting. We go over all their lineup. You know, mm-hmm. and the, the one thing that I heard all the time: Well, this guy's a first ball fastball hitter. Well, I'm a first ball fastball pitcher, you know, so it was always mono e mono for me. I wasn't going to back off what I did, you know. I had a routine and I had a purpose and I knew how I attacked hitters and I was usually low and away. I can promise you if I got two strikes low and away or on the outside part of the plate and I was ahead 0 2, that second, that third pitch was going to be up and in somewhere. I was going to be on the inside part of the plate. And if I missed, I usually missed inside, but I, that was my, that's what I like to do because I like jamming guys and I like, you know, throwing uh, change-ups and getting off the end of the bat, you know. I hit a lot of barrels, though. I'm not afraid to say that. So, uh, But I, that was my plan of attack. A lot of solo home runs, oh, yeah. so a lot of solo. Yeah, but that was my plan of attack. Yeah. And, you know, that's one thing I don't I don't see as much of, except some of the veteran pitchers now that uh, you see how they, they, they mm-hmm. operate. But most of these kids nowadays – I don't see that uh, the art of pitching, man, yeah. is going away. Yep. What you just what you just said of setting guys up in the mental part of it is going away. That's why I love when I see you talking to pitchers about repertoire and pitch selection. Yeah, well, I think I think they give the hitters too much credit. You know, I think these guys today. You know, I I, I one I think when it comes to, when they come out of college, they were in a program where every pitch was called for them. Yeah. And they weren't allowed to shake off the catcher, you know. And then when they get to professional baseball, they're kind of stuck, you know, because they're not sure. Because now they got to call their own game, uh, and some of them aren't used to doing that, right. so it's uh, it's new to them. But uh, the cool thing about when I was coaching here and in, in rookie ball, I was in rookie ball for about five years, you know. So I got them when they were brand new, when they were just getting into pro ball. Uh, and getting them to buy into that, say, listen, do not give those hitters credit, you know, because the one thing I remember used to seeing so often was a guy would throw two fastballs, and the guy would be so late he'd fouled off over their dugout both times, and then the next pitch would be a breaking ball, you know. So that bat that was in the back of the strike zone, they're fouling off, suddenly gets to the front of the strike zone, and they hit it really hard somewhere. So uh, getting to read the hitters, learning what the hitters can do and can't do, and, and uh, the the easy thing about being in the major leagues is you see the same hitters every year for the most part. You know right. how to go after guys. and. Uh, how do you attack them? And again, I they, I didn't have, I had three pitches. You know, my breaking ball was the same breaking ball I had in high school, uh, because I didn't want to mess up my fastball changeup combination. I was stubborn in that regard. You know, I probably could have got a better one and been a little bit more effective because I really hated lefties, because I took away my changeup or my screwball, which was my changeup. But then I started to throw it to lefties as well and had some success. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, but, I mean, I, that was my approach. You know, I didn't care if the whole team, the other team knew what I was doing. You know, I actually had – but I had the ability to – my ball had a little hop to it. Even though I wasn't a flamethrower, I, I was a four-seam fastball. Uh, and I guess today it would be regarded as something about uh, the spin, you know, spin, spin ratio, rate. you know, yeah. whatever. I don't know. I said I just know that, you know, when I threw my fastball, it, it didn't – it had a little ride to it. It wasn't yeah. a sinker. It was just a little bit of ride. So I got a lot of pop-ups. Which I think is why I was successful in, in at Riverfront because it is an AstroTurf field and, you know, 
a lot of ground balls find holes in the half turf because it picks up uh, picks up speed once it gets hit. So. Well, I used to love to watch you pitch. Not only did you work quickly, but you used to jam guys. And, you know, you don't have to throw 95 to break bats. And you used to read hitters of how a guy would swing the bat. And you would know, okay, he's looking for the ball here. And you you just were a pitcher's pitcher. I just loved watching you Well, I mean, I watched Tom Seaver as a kid growing up, Catfish Hunter. You know, those guys, you know, were guys that I enjoyed watching pitch because they kind of carved people up. Yeah. Catfish was probably one, you know, Vita Blue. Uh, oh, probably one of my favorites. Yeah. Oh. oh, I know. Well, he was for what? I know. Uh, three hours yeah, or something. The- well, I actually got a pitch against him when he was with the Giants, you know, and I got yeah. to talk to him while we were in town there, and just you know, it was it was really cool. So yeah, nineteen ninety. Here comes 1990. Uh, under Pete Rose, you guys finished uh, second place, I think. Bridesmaids. Yeah. <laughs> like four straight seasons, something like that. Uh, and then here comes Lou Pinella. Yeah. Um, did you guys sense in spring training that things were a little different that year? Or, or did the whole season wire to wire just kind of surprise even you guys? Well, I think we were so young, really, in, in, in the in – the, uh, at that time, I think we had Ronnie Oster, I think Rick Mailer. I was 30, uh, but everybody else was younger. And, you know, we were kind of young in, 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 the, in the sense that we didn't really, you know, even though we finished second a lot, we just really were never, ever in first place uh, in September. We were in first place a few times, but we were already uh, in second place by the time September came and mm-hmm. ne- never really caught up. But that year, well, it started off, we got locked out of spring training. Okay, so a bunch of us were down there. We were working out at Plant City High School. You know, I was throwing batting practice, and those guys were hitting, and uh, we were just kind of stay ready. But, I mean, because it's spring training, we're ready to go. And Got we locked out. Yeah, they locked us out of spring training that year. We started that spring training late because that's the year, the only year. Oh, okay, I thought you meant like someone physically locked oh, the oh, gate. No. You're talking. Oh, about they did. <laughs> we couldn't get in there. So uh, <laughs> you're uh, talking about the labor dispute. Right, right. So we started we, late. Actually, started the season on the road in Houston. Correct. Which was correct. So. Anyway, uh, Pete was down there living in Plant City, and he was uh, took up the game of golf. And I ran into him down there while we're still locked out, and he asked me if I wanted to play a round of golf. And I said, yeah. I had a buddy of mine, a guy named Jeff Henry, who uh, was kind of my, my, one of my best friends. And he, actually, he came to spring training with me like three or four or five years in a row, you know. First year we went down two two or three days early, and then we went down a week, and then I went down a month early. So because it was not because we could play a lot of golf. So anyway, Jeff and I and, and Pete and there was a guy named Steve Cunningham who was a friend of mine who has since passed, but he was from South Carolina. They put him with us, and Pete had a reporter in there who was doing some sort of story or whatever. So so we're playing golf, and we're playing at Walden Lakes in uh, in Plant City, and the eighth hole is is right along the road. It follows the road all the way down when you're pulling into going into the 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 golf course and jeff and i were sitting on the eighth tee and it was it was a tee box that was recessed by palmetto bushes so you couldn't see any anything but the front of the tee box and jeff and i are up there talking and we're waiting for the group that's in the fairway to clear to get on the green so we can tee off and about that time lupinella's driving by and he sees us and he stops and he gets out of his car and he comes up to the tee box you know and and you know at about that time i'm starting to feel kind of uneasy because uh, I got Bronco Nagurski back here, Pete, playing golf with us, and, and Lou took his job or whatever. So right. anyway, Lou comes up, and, and he sees me, and he shakes his hand and says, hey, Tom, Lou Pinella. And I said, hi, Lou. And then he turns and sees Pete. And I wanted to be anywhere else but there, okay? I just was so uneasy because I just was, you know, 
the former manager, the new manager. Yeah. Uh, but Lou and, and great Lou fashion said, Hey Pete, nice to see you. He said, Hey, maybe sometime I can sit down with you and talk to you about your team. And it just kind of diffused it right there. And it was awesome. The fact that he said your team, because yeah. I mean, let's oh, face yeah. it, Pete brought, you know, saw a lot of, you he guys was the Dave Bristol of the, you know, of the, of yeah. the eighties, you yeah. know, he kind of yeah. built that team and brought all us kids up and, yeah. uh, but it was so awesome, you know, and then, uh, we, we we settled the lockout. We got started uh, spring training, and the very first day, the very first uh, morning, Lou has a meeting. He said, there's too much talent in this room not to have won. He said, this is our year, and he, I'm here to win too, so I don't care if you like me. And then we go out there, and the first uh, we do used to do cutoffs and relays in the morning along with PFP, but we started off with cutoffs and relays, and the very first uh, he hits a ball to so, or Sammy, I guess, Perlazzo, Hits the ball in the gap, and the guys don't line up properly, and Lou goes off. And I went, whoa, 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 this guy's serious. But, I mean, he was he was a very passionate guy. Yeah. Uh, and we got off to a great start. We went, we had to start the uh, season in Houston. Well, here, I'll, I'll back it up. I, I like pitching B games, you know, because I, I threw a lot of fastballs in spring training because I was trying to get command of that fastball, and mm-hmm. then I'd mix in my changeup and breaking balls. So, I asked, I said, if you don't mind, I'll take all the B games you can give me. Because that way, if I, if I get hammered and I get beat up, I don't have to – the manager doesn't have to get booed for leaving me in there or, right. or I get have to get out of there early because I'm, I'm not doing well. So I pitched against Houston five times that spring, and there's a guy named Glenn Davis who hit a home run off me every single game. Okay, uh, but at, but again, in spring training, I was trying to get command of that fastball on the outside part of the plate, so I stayed mostly away in spring training. But I knew once the season started that I was going to play with both sides of the plate. So Glenn Davis comes and we start. I got I got the opening game in Houston, and Glenn Davis, I got two strikes on him. And once I got two strikes, again, I was going inside. Well, he's diving, thinking I'm going out, and I hit him. His second time up, same thing. I get two strikes on him. I come inside, and I hit him again. And uh, and I think Randy Myers hit him for the third time in that game. But somebody asked me about it after the game, and we actually we actually won the game in uh, uh, extra innings. You know, And I remember talking to Billy Dorn because uh, at that time he was with Houston, and right. he said when we came into town and uh, we played them the three games, he, they, he said we just looked at each other and said, we don't have anything to beat these guys. And, of course, we had the nasty boys. Uh, but anyway, after the game, the reporters asked me, you know, about hitting him, and I kind of told them the story. I said I, I wasn't upset that I hit him, but it got in the press that I hit him on purpose. And I'm like, well, and then I get a call from Bill White, the president of the National League, saying, Tom, you know, I'm, you hit Glenn Davis twice last night. I heard it was intentional, and I told him the story. And I said, no, it was never intentional. I said he was diving because I, I threw him away all spring. And I said I wasn't going to let him hit a home run up me opening day. And I said, so I tried to pitch him inside. And I said, I hit him. I said, I wasn't upset that I hit him. I said, I just, you know, it, it was his fault because he was diving. So uh, so it was left at that. Of course, then we ran off nine in a row uh, and, and really never looked back. And you guys had, I mean, not only great baseball players, and the results speak for themselves, but a lot of characters oh, on that yeah. team. Oh, I mean, that bullpen we had? <laughs> yeah. That uh, we had Dibble and Myers and Charlton, you know, and Norm was probably the filthiest of the three. Randy was their, our closer. Dibs and, and Norm were the setup guys. Uh, but that was the beginning, I think. Uh, that was the very first, uh, I think, first time you ever saw what we call the three-headed monster. Yeah. You know, I think the Royals kind of did it when they won mm-hmm. it that one year. But, I mean, that was, 
you know, the tough thing for a starting pitcher with that team was if you got any tr- into any trouble after the six, you know, you were out of there Done. because we had those guys, you know. So, uh, but we did. We had characters. We had we had a good group of guys that enjoyed being around one another. We would go out after games on the road in packs. We wouldn't go out with a couple guys. We'd go out with seven or eight guys. You know, we'd go take over bars or or ice cream parlors, I guess, and more more than bars. But you know, we enjoyed being around one another, and we really enjoyed playing the game. We you know we pulled for everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, Louis Quinones, I don't know if you remember him. Yep. He was one of the characters. He didn't like to wear clothes in the clubhouse. He used to chase what? guys. Yeah, you know. But Louis was an awesome guy. In fact, Louis Quinones and myself and Barry Larkin all share the same birthday, uh, which was kind of neat. Uh, but we had characters, and we had guys that uh, – we had Jack Armstrong, you know, who was in the first half of that year the best pitcher in baseball. was incredible that first half. Yeah, and then he kind of ran out of gas the yeah. second half. and uh, But we had enough – you know, we had enough lead. And, you know, there was a couple times where – uh, we could hear the Dodgers coming. The mm-hmm. Giants were on our tail a little bit. I think that somebody got to within three games. But, uh, you know, that was just a, a magical year. It went by so fast. But it's probably my, my favorite year that I ever played. Uh, and and to obviously winning the World Series was, you know, that was our ultimate goal. And that was, that was cool. But the World Series went by really fast, too. Randy Myers, um, he's showing up in fatigues. He's bringing <gasps> – <laughs> is, that your, is that your Randy? That's Gray? Randy. Hey, guys. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he was, we call him the soldier of fortune, you know. And he was, he bought this damn zap gun, you know, that, that thing used to hold that had the electricity between two nodes yeah. thing. And I know, you could ask Rick Stowe, because Rick was out there too. And I, you know, my locker wasn't near Randy's, but I was real close when I when it happened. But Randy was playing with this thing, and Lou Pinella walked by, and he says, what you got there, Randy? He goes, oh, I got all these ray guns, zap gun, whatever. And he zapped him. Hit him he on the zapped th- Lou? Oh, he knocked him on his ass. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Lou went down. And he said, Jesus Christ, Randy. He said, well, you asked me what it was, so... Uh, but Randy, you know, Randy, you know, he had that, that trot he had, and we always thought yeah. he had, he always looked like he had a switchblade in his back pocket. We don't know what it was. I never even asked him what it was, but every time yeah. he went out there and pitch, he had like a, looked like it looked like a switchblade or it looked like a knife or something that was folded up, you know, whatever. Right. But, uh, but I never did ask him what it was, but, uh, yeah, Randy was awesome. I mean, they were all awesome. Dibble, you know, he had a, he had a heart of gold. He had an ego the size of Texas. He hated losing, which I loved about him. And I would take him on my team any day. But, man, when he didn't do well, <laughs> that uniform was ripped off or something happened. So Yeah, or he was uh, fighting with the manager. Oh, yeah, the wrestling we, match. Yeah. yeah. That was uh, – well, that was – I don't know if it was that year. It might have been the next year. Yeah. But I remember because Dibs, had, Dibs had thrown in three games in a row. He had right. thrown in the last three games. And he, I know he – came in the clubhouse and when you came in that clubhouse you had to walk by the manager's office right. to get in the into the regular locker room and i think he he told uh skipper uh he said hey you know if I, if you don't need me today i wouldn't mind having a day off so lou just gave him the day off and it, there came a situation late in the game where he he could have used him but he didn't and i think we lost the game and uh so the reporters went in there and asked lou about it and he said oh, he didn't want to pitch today and as soon as he finished that statement, the reporters left and went right to Dibs' right locker. Right to Dibble, yeah. You know, and then Dibs, you know, made his comment, well, that's a bunch of crap or whatever he said. And then they turned around and went right back in the Lou's office and told him what Dibs said. <laughs> well, here, it, here comes Lou, you know, straddling out there. And then uh, I remember Larkin was there with his towel on, trying to keep his towel from falling off, trying to break it up. Belcher was 
hitting the TV camera so the guy wouldn't uh, film right. it, you know. Told him he'd break the oh, camera. Oh, it was like two whales. Turn wha- the camera off, I'll break it. <laughs> yeah, there's two whales down there wrestling, you know. It was, it was just a sight to behold. But, uh, you know, that was Lou and that was Dibs. You know, they two both were very packed. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, I remember in 90 when we uh, – I'll always remember this because Lou was so good with his words. He was so articulate, you know. He was uh, – we were we, – we, we're struggling. We, we clinched the division, okay, and so we had to play out the string. We weren't playing very well, and uh, he decided to have a meeting uh, because we were about a week away from going to the playoffs. Mm-hmm. And, he, and, he, and the one thing I remember is we will not be going into the playoffs in a losing posture. You know, which I just thought was awesome. But he was very, he was teary eyed when he talked about it because he cared. You know, really? that was all. Oh, it was awesome. It was all. Oh, he did some wonderful things. You know, I mean, I could uh, when he kicked the turkey. We get we got beat. Oh, that might have been that year because we had a rain delay. And and back then, Bernie had this guy George. And I don't remember his last name. It was a Greek name, but he was from the West Side, and he cooked the greatest turkey. He had the greatest potatoes. You know, with sour cream whatever mixed in it it was just awesome so we come in for the first rain delay and all you could do is smell that food yeah you know and the game and we went back out and played had another rain delay kate we had to go back out you know and by then you know we're, we're like you know what we, i don't care about winning this game we'll let him have this game we're ready we won't eat that turkey so we get done with the game we end up losing they call the game uh we end up losing in eight innings whatever it was and so we go in there and everybody's in there getting turkey and stuff and lou Pinella comes in and I know Billy Hatcher was sitting there with a plate, waiting to, waiting to get food, and he's just sitting there. And Lou Pinella comes in. And he says, "How can you want to eat this time of night after watching that?" Whatever he said, I don't know what swear word it was. Mm-hmm. And he kicked the turkey, okay, and it just blows up, and a leg lands right on Hatcher's plate. <laughs> <laughs> and I think Hatcher's like, "What do I do here now?" So he ended up making us leave, and we left. We didn't get to eat, so we and and then. Randy Myers and and uh, that was ninety one and Randy Myers and Carmelo Martinez snuck back in there and were they were grabbing some of the turkey and stuff and he went in there and saw him and yelled at him and kicked him out but uh, he was a passionate man you know he oh, really yeah. he, he managed with passion he loved players uh, he had their back I think probably because he was a player as well yeah. you know he was not a Paul O'Neill fan and I say that because I think Paul O'Neill was probably the exact kind of player that Lou Pinella was when he didn't do well. He got angry, you know. Yeah. If Paul had four at bats, Paul wanted five hits, you know. I mean, Paul was never satisfied. And that's right. what I loved about him. I and mean, we played all the way up together. So uh, I think that's why they struggled. Cause, you know, I think Lou wanted Paul to be more of a pull hitter as well instead of being a spray hitter. Uh, eventually, we traded Paul to the Yankees, you know. And we, as teammates of his that knew him very well, we there was two things that could happen. New York was going to eat him up and spit him out, or he was going to thrive. And he thrived. Boy, did know? he. And he had a great career mm-hmm. there. And, you know, as much as I want to consider Paul a, a Cincinnati Red, he's probably more known. And I think he's probably more proud of being a New York Yankee as well. So. Oh, he's absolutely known as yeah, a Yeah, but he was I mean, a great teammate. Yeah, I loved him. Beloved there. Irish right fielder in New York. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, Lou Pinella, were you there? And there was a story that I've heard he was in the dugout and he went it was the you know the the bottom of the dugout oh, with those wood rain delay. oh no I mean the rain the wood planks yes. it got really slippery and he okay. went to kick a hat <laughs> yes well chris sabo was known uh if he made an out and and back then at riverfront you had two entrances one by the bat rack and one by the first base side right and if Sabo would make it out, he'd walk into the dugout, take his helmet off, and just fling it down the, you know, we'd always yell incoming because he'd just fire it down the, so the bat boy would pick it up by the bat rack and put it away. 
and this happened. Sable made it out, and he came into the dugout, and we're playing Montreal. And uh, we yelled incoming, and Sable let it fire, and it went down and hit Lou right in the ankle. Okay, and Lou's looking down at it. You could just see him steaming, and he goes to kick it, you know, like a skip, a hop skip thing right. to kick it, and he lost his footing, and he fell on his ass. You know, he almost hit that concrete barrier out to the, out to the feet playing field, but he fell down. Okay, so we're all sitting there, like, looking down the right field line. We're not even looking down there to see, you know. I look over at Montreal, and they're all laughing their ass off. You know, we're just sitting there very quietly, you know, not doing anything, you know. And finally, you didn't know whether or not yeah, to laugh or yeah. not, right? Oh, God, it was funny as hell, but we you know, we didn't want to laugh at our manager. Yeah. Uh, so he ends up in standing up, and you know how he used to put his hat on? He used to, oh, yeah. And, and just adjust kind of adjust it, yeah. yeah. And he gets up and puts his hat on. He says, go ahead and laugh, fellas. I think it's funny. You know, so we let, we let it out. But, yeah, that was uh, – he had a few things. I, I was pitching in Atlanta, and I had a 5 nothing lead going into the sixth inning. And I gave up five runs to tie the game. He takes me out of the game. So I go on the bat rack, and I grab my bat, and I take it down into the tunnel to check to see if it's broke, you know, whatever, just to take anger out on my bat. And I'm beating it up against the wall. And all of a sudden, I hear Lou Pinellas say, well, I'd be pissed off, too, if I was throwing that horse shit up there. <laughs> <laughs> and then about the eighth inning, because I never was a guy to go into the clubhouse after I was done pitching. I used to just sit there and, yeah. and watch the rest of the game. Uh, and about the eighth inning, he came over and, you know, he said, hey, how you doing? I said, I'm okay. He said, oh, you'll be all right. I said, I know. I appreciate it, you know, whatever. So and that's what I liked about him. And he actually he, – he taught me how to handle players – uh, or personnel or personalities as well as anybody. And when I when I got into the coaching, uh, when I started coaching the minor leagues, that's that's a, I learned a lot of how to handle players because of him. Yeah. Well, you're known as Mr. Perfect. You're known as you know Reds Hall of Famer. Um, also known as the world, the guy in the World Series whose wife was having a baby and yeah. you had to. Get you back to the stadium, which is well. That that just that was just so goofy. <laughs> um, was. Yeah, I mean, because yeah, she was she was uh, you well, know eight and a half, nine, almost yeah. ready to go. What and was I'm that not, game? Game two, two. Yeah, you know, and I'm sitting in the dugout, you know, and she was at the game uh, with with her best friend from across the street and her husband, and uh, I'm just you know sitting in the dugout, and Rick Stowe comes up. In the seventh inning, it says, Tom, your wife's in labor. She's going to the hospital. And I said, what? He goes, yeah, she's going to drive herself to the hospital. I said, oh, hell. I said, I'm out of here then. I'm gone. So yeah. so I knew, Rick knew where I was going. Because you were starting game three. three. The first game out there in, in Oakland. In Oakland, yeah. yeah. So I said, I'm out of here. So I ran out to the parking lot. Sure enough, she was in the uh, at the car getting ready to get in. And I said, oh, I got you. I got you. So I went and I got in the driver's seat. And she got in the passenger seat. And and I drove her straight to the hospital. I didn't turn the radio on. I just drove. I mean, all I could think about was, God, I don't have the baby in the car, you know, not knowing that the doctor said, well, we can delay the, you know, the, the uh, right. we can delay it until the game's over, blah, 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 whatever. But she didn't tell me any of that stuff. So uh, anyway, I get to the hospital. I'm in the waiting room, you know, and there's people walking by me, and I'm in my uniform. Full you know, uniform. Full uniform. From the you know, World Series you know, game. They're probably thinking, what a fan that guy is, you know. <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, a receptionist comes over and says, Mr. Browning, there's some people on the on the phone that are looking for you, and I, and I said, you know what? They're probably wanting to know if I had a boy or girl. I said, don't even tell them I'm here. Uh, and she said, okay, and she walked away. So then we had to go up to the the it's called the birthing place, I think it's at Saint E South over there in Edgewood. Uh, 
we go up there, and the doctor says, uh, he says, Tom, well, she had to have a C-section because Tucker was, it was my son Tucker. He was mm-hmm. previa placenta, so he had to have a C-section. And he said, we got to apply an epidural. Uh, why don't you go in the doctor's lounge and watch the game while we're prepping her? He said, it'd be about 20 minutes. I said, okay. So I go in the doctor's lounge, and I no longer was sitting on that couch. And on the TV is one guy, Tim McCarver, only. And, it, and it's like, well, he was talking to me, but it looked like he knew I was on the other side of that television watching. He said, Tom, if you're watching, he said, they need you to come back to the ballpark. They need you to pitch. I'll tell you, something else has transpired in this ballpark, in this ballpark that is unbelievable. Tom Browning, who is slated for the start in game three, as you see Bill Bates, he'll be the pinch hitter for Rob Dibble. We just learned that Tom Browning earlier left the ballpark his wife went into labor the reds clubhouse called up to marty brenneman the local radio announcer here in cincinnati he's been doing reds baseball for 17 years asking marty to make a public announcement and tell tom there's marty right there to the left of your screen and tell tom browning to return to the ballpark and marty Bre- marty brenneman made that announcement because lou Pinella might be out of picture and he may be thinking of using Tom Browning in the game tonight. I've never heard of anything that unusual happen in a ball game. I'm just staring at him. I'm like, how does he know? I'm like, I didn't know what to do. <laughs> you know, I was kind of in a panic. And I said, oh, my God, what? What? Uh, you know, because I'm thinking I'm pitching game three that, you know, but again, they were going extra innings and I didn't know. And and then about, you know, probably 10 minutes later, I guess, into the, you know, they started the inning and, and Billy Bates gets a second base. Joe Oliver hits a ball down the left field line and Billy Bates comes home to score. And about as soon as Billy Bates touched home plate, the door flew up and the doc said, okay, we're ready. And I said, oh, cool, we just won. So I was pretty excited about it, you know. And uh, so the next day, I, we get on the plane to go to Oakland, and I run into Lou, and, you know, he said, hey, man, we were trying to find you. And I said, ah, you know, I, I, I know that now. I said, but at the time, I said, there was no way I could have left, leave my wife while we're having a baby. I said, she'd have severed some probably <laughs> extensions on me. So uh, I said, I couldn't leave. And I thought, well, if we, you know, if, if Tucker was born and, and they were all settled in and everything and the game was still going on, you bet I'd have went back. But uh, there was no way I was going to go back until until the birth of my son came in. So Joe Oliver saved you. He did. He did. He saved me more than a couple times. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, kind of fitting that your battery mate would yeah. uh, be the one that would end up saving you in that that situation. But no, that's a great story, and I I remember it vividly. Yeah. Um, I just couldn't a, believe it. You know, and, yeah. and again, I. I because I know I, I see in footage now uh, that I saw yeah. uh, that they replay on YouTube or whatever else. You can see him and Stan Williams talking, and you know you can tell Lou's pissed. You know he's right. just like you know you can can't pull his hands up, yeah. and you know like yeah. well, you know where the hell is he kind of thing. So, uh, but it worked out. So yeah, no doubt. Uh, Lou Pinella, one of I mean, just wow. Oh, uh, he was great. I mean, he was just, great in every facet, and uh, you know I think. He, he really wanted – because he got sued, I think, by an umpire or something, and there were some things going on that, that, the, that he was hoping the Reds would help him out with, I think, uh, that didn't happen. Uh, you know, and then him leaving on, on like that and then took Bob Quinn. He stole Norm Charlton. He stole Danny Wilson, one of our top catching prospects, when he went to Seattle. Yeah. Uh, but he was great. He was great for Cincinnati. I think he'll always be loved by Cincinnati. Oh, but, no question. You know, yeah. 
Yeah, no question. Um, and then along comes Davey Johnson, who uh, <laughs> let's uh, let's talk about uh, one day at Wrigley Field. Yeah, well, again, well, I, I failed to put it. You know, I said you're known for Mr. Perfect and Reds Hall of Fame, and then I put the World Series thing. But above that has to be the day at Wrigley Field where you ended that up. That is one of my better moments. It, it won't replace the World Series yeah. it, or even my perfect game. But now that, that just was by semi-accident, I guess. Uh, we had played the Pittsburgh Pirates in, in Pittsburgh, and I ran into a guy named Bob Walk, uh, who was a friend of mine. He said, hey, when you get to Wrigley, go meet the ground crew guy. He'll get you up in the scoreboard. He said, it's pretty cool to look at the game from the scoreboard. Yeah. So when we get into Wrigley, it was about two weeks later, uh, we go to Wrigley, and I went down and saw the ground crew guy, and he said, you want to get in the scoreboard? I said, I do. He said, well, I can't. He said, I got some. I caught some flack from the front office for allowing Bobby to do that, so I can't do that. So, And Timmy Belcher was on the team at the time, so we're out there shagging during batting practice. And I, also, I look at the buildings, and I said, you know what? It would be kind of cool to maybe sneak over and get on one of them buildings. You know, I could probably get away with that. And uh, so we go inside the clubhouse, and uh, Tom Hellman, or uh, uh, Timmy Hellman, who works here in spring training, his brother Tom was the, the clubhouse manager for the visiting clubhouse. I said, uh, we called him Otis. And I said, Otis, do you know anybody that owns any of them buildings? He said, yeah, his name is George Lucas. Uh, not the George Lucas, but a George Lucas. I said, do you have his phone number? And he says, I do. I said, can you get him on the phone for me? And he said, sure. So he called him, and, and I said, George, my name is Tom Brown. I'm with the Cincinnati Reds. I was hoping maybe I could sneak over and sit on one of your rooftops for maybe half an inning. He said, that would be so cool. Why don't you meet me out in front of Murphy's Pub in the top of the third inning? I said, okay. So I told Belch, I said, man, I got it. I said, I got to wear a sweatsuit or something. So somebody had a black sweatsuit that they let me borrow. So I sat in the bullpen for the first two innings. Of course, in Wrigley, you know, you don't sit in that dugout very often because it's so little. Oh, and if yeah. you stand up real fast, you bump your head on the right. ceiling, whatever. So I sat in the bullpen for the first two innings. And after the second inning was over, I stood up and I said, all right, boys, look for me. And they said, where are you going? I said, don't worry, you'll find me. So I, I, I said, oh, no. you, you called your shot. You told him. Oh, yeah. I didn't tell him where I was going. Yeah. I just said, I'm uh, just look for me. So uh, I went in the dugout. I said, all right, Belch, I'm out of here. And I went up to the clubhouse, got my sweatsuit. And back then, I don't know if you could even get out of the building nowadays, but I, I met the ground crew guy or the uh, security guy at the gate to, to get out of the building. I unzipped my shirt. I said, I'll be, if you don't mind, I'll be right back, whatever. And he said, that's fine. So I went over and I met George and we walked down three or four buildings and then, uh, Walked up three flights of stairs, and I got to the, the, the rooftop, and I took my sweatsuit off and left it right by the doorway of the stairway. And I walked over, and I sat on the ledge. And I took my hat off, and I started waving to my boys in the bullpen. And they saw me. They stood up. They started waving <laughs> back. You know, and then uh, there, while I was there, a lady said, are you really a ball player? And I said, yeah. She says, well, what are you doing here? And I said, oh, I just want to see what it was like to watch a ball game from over here. And she says, that is so cool. Do you want a beer and a brats? And I said, oh, no, no. I said, I'm already in enough trouble anyway. So uh, anyway, t during that time, Timmy Belcher got the TV camera on me. Oh, okay. yeah. And the while famous I was there, tip of the cap. Yeah, and then while I was there, Timmy, uh, Kevin Mitchell hit a three-run homer, and we took the lead 4-3, to three, and we ended up winning the game 4-3. to three. So I get back in the dugout uh, in the fourth, by the top of the fourth inning, and Belt says, hey, man, I got the TV camera on me. And I said, oh, Timmy, I said, now you cost me money. I said, now they're going to find me. Uh, so after the game was over, we won the game, you know, and I kind of forgot about it. I think basically because I think Riho ended up chasing some ladies out of their seats with that squirt gun. You know, he yeah. had that, that super soaker right. thing. Uh, so I, I kind of completely forgot about it. And, uh, and then a reporter came up to you at my locker and said, Hey, 
you know, you want to talk to me about your, your trip to across the street? And I said, yeah, but really before I could answer anything, Davy Johnson tapped me on the other shoulder and said, I need to see you in my office. And I, you know, kind of like the principal. Uh, <laughs> he so was I, none too pleased. Oh, no, no. But I can promise you on the inside as a player, he was probably okay with it. But he yeah. was with the Reds and he had to show. And that's what I think Bowden was kind of in charge. Uh, he had to show some sort of, uh, you know authority i guess to and he and he started chewing me out i mean he was screaming at me and stuff and i said and that was a year that tony perez got fired okay yeah. uh and when as soon as tony got fired they could have canceled the season for us because we wanted to play for tony so anyway that was part of my reason for doing it you know to give us some levity and you know we like i said we were 25 guys going in 25 different directions winning wasn't really part of the program uh because we were just so pissed that that doggy really? that doggy got fired oh yeah yeah uh, so i mean it, i remember everyone being angry but that really lasted the whole season i mean davy johnson was a really good manager but that he was really, for the mats <laughs> uh, but that really lasted that, oh, that well much, the animosity of letting doggy go yeah, I, I absolutely. Because we, we we got fired on our uh, after coming back from San Francisco. Yeah. We were twenty and twenty four on the year. Yeah. We were four games. Four games is not enough. Yeah, four time. games under five hundred. Not enough time to give a manager. That's so anyway, he started chewing me out and saying some things, and I and I kind of put my hand up. I said, "Whoa!" I said, first of all," and I said a few choice words to him, you know, just to kind of cut him off. And I said, "What I did deserves a fine." Uh, We'll leave it at that. You just tell me how much it is, and we'll leave it at that. And then I walked out, and he and he fined me five hundred bucks, which was the going rate at the time, I guess for for fines. <clears throat> uh, but he ended up he had me write a five hundred dollar check to his girlfriend's charity, you know. And Marge found out about it, and she was none too happy about that because first of all, Davey wasn't married; he was living with his girlfriend, so they were living in sin. <laughs> According to Marge. <laughs> According yeah. to Marge, yeah, you know. So there was a little bit of heat over that but uh you know that's what it, it it worked out fine i mean the players loved it we go play the marlins the very that's the first year the marlins came into the league and we get on to play the florida marlins for the first time and the very first day wayne heisinga the owner of the marlins sent his secretary down to our clubhouse inviting me to sit in his restaurant in right center field sometime during the game and i said no 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 i'm already in enough trouble i think we'll have to leave it at that so uh, but it was, uh, you know, again, yeah. one of my career highlights. Well, when, in Cincinnati, you're known as Mr. Perfect, but around baseball nationally, you're known for that. I mean, yeah. when you're yeah. outside of Cincinnati, more people ask you about that? The Wrigley? A lot of people. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, I remember seeing it. I mean, I think, you know, as many people remember that as my perfect game, you know. Yeah. Well, every anniversary, every oh, time yeah. the anniversary comes Well, this comes last up. year was a cool one because yeah. it was my 25th, right. and they and the Reds were in Wrigley. Which was unbelievable, oh, was, and they didn't schedule it that way. That was just the baseball correct. gods, as fate would have it. 25 yeah. years later, the Reds are in Wrigley. Yeah, and the Hall of Fame, you know, in good fashion. They invited me to go up there. They actually had this, the exact uniform that I wore right. uh, that year. It was a little snug, but it, you know, it fit better than I anticipated. Uh, but it was a little bit different because the the the, the rooftops different. You know, yeah. that was a, those were apartments back then, and and now they they got a restaurant inside on the second floor. And it's awesome, right? And I do intend on sending them a, a picture of that so they have that in their restaurant as well. So. That's outstanding. Now I have to backtrack because I forgot to ask you about something. These conversations just kind of I just kind of let them go, as you know. Yeah, we just sit down and start talking. But the the perfect game. The ball from the perfect game. Yes. I've told this story, and it's still yeah. one of those. It's like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe this happened. Um, tell us what happened with the ball. Well, I had the ball in my glove, and uh, after the game, 
you know, I didn't get home till like three o'clock in the morning because yeah. the game got over almost near midnight. Right. Uh, I sat around and drank some beer, and uh, actually, I got into a argument that morning. Okay, let me let me backtrack. My wife comes in the bedroom at nine o'clock in the morning and says, "Hey, are you going to clean the garage today?" I said, "Well, I'm pitching today." On the day you're pitching. Yeah, I said, well, I'm pitching today. And she says, well, you know what? If you get out of bed and do something around here, you might pitch better. You know? (laughs) So at noon, she kept going, you know? She just kept hammering me. So finally, I said, I I remember I was cutting up watermelon for lunch, and uh, she come at me again. I said, that's enough. That's enough. So I got in my truck, and I went to the ballpark. You know, I stopped at Fresh's and got my two things, and I head to the ballpark. I was there at like 1 o'clock, 1.30, and, you know, I very rarely got to the ballpark uh, before two, but still usually it was right around two. So I get to the ballpark, and uh, you know I'm there the whole time, you know whatever. And then after the game, Billy Cunningham, who had the night show, ended up calling me on the radio, yeah, or calling me, and I had me on the radio, and he actually called my wife as well. And so we kind of made up over the phone, you know. And my wife didn't even listen to the game. Okay, her friend, her best friend across the street, called her and said, "Are you listening to the game?" She says, "No," and she turned it on and heard what was going off, and she turned it off because she didn't want to jinx me, I guess. So. Uh, so anyway, I got well, home. Superstitious wife. Oh, with a superstitious oh, I, I, husband. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She, well, that's great. But I yeah. mean, uh, it was kind of neat that we made up. You know, she was proud of me. Whatever, whatever. It was all kind of mushy. But uh, anyway, <laughs> uh, I took the ball home and I put it on my mantle. Mm-hmm. Okay, and it sat there for four years. You know, and it was a kind of a unwritten rule in my house. And Tanner was the only the boy I had at the time. Uh, and, but it wasn't and, marked, right? It was no, just, but there was a rule in my house that if there's a ball and it's got a, any kind of writing on it, you're not allowed to touch it. Well, I didn't do anything. I just put it on there. I didn't put anything on it. I didn't write perfect game, nothing. I just set it on my mantle. And then it sat there for like four years. And then one day I came home and it was gone. And I, and I asked Tanner, I said, uh, Tanner, do you know what happened to that ball that was up there? And he goes, oh, yeah, Kyle and I played. He said, there was no writing on it. I said, I know, I know. He said, uh, Kyle and I were playing with it out back. And I said, what happened? He goes, well, we hit it in the woods. I said, well, did you go get it? And he goes, no, no. Why? I said, well, because that was the last out of my perfect game. Oh, he goes, oh, sorry. You know, because he was like six. So yeah. It didn't really matter to him. So, uh, And that's where it stood. But I will say this. After that game, the uh, the ball boys from the umpire's room said, hey, Tom, we got some game-used balls. Uh, would you like any? And I said, yeah, give me about six or seven. I'm going to be kind of neat. I said, but there's one in particular that I want. Uh, in the fifth inning, or I don't remember what inning it was, Mickey Hatcher, the first baseman, and that was a year of the uh, – Louisville Sluggers, Silver Slugger. They had they had the black batch with the silver right. on it. You know, the, the everything was in was shined up with the the label and all that was all silver. Oh, I, and I jammed. I have a feeling and, I know where you're going here. No, well, was I, there a I no Louisville Slugger. Ended oh up yeah, on the oh, ball? absolutely. Oh, yeah. Well, I jammed him so bad that when they he hit a little lazy little soft pop up to Nick Asaski at first base and they threw the ball around. When I got it back, I looked at it, I said, Oh, look at that! It had Louisville Slugger in reverse on the ball. And I was so proud of that yeah. that I threw it into Pete because I wanted him to see it, you know. And uh, so after the game was over, I said, yeah, there's one in particular that I want. And I told them which one I wanted, and they found that ball. And that's the one my dad has. I gave that one to my dad. Oh, so so, it's, so it's there's some perfect game balls still out there. Uh, I know I have one somewhere, but I got a box. It's probably so deep that I can't even find it anymore. But, uh, yeah, that was uh, that's what happened with that one. And, and, again, you know, it was an innocent 
mistake, you know. He he, he used it properly because there was no writing on it. It was just a baseball. The final out ball, though. Yeah, somewhere yeah, in a soggy. Oh, it's nesting now. Nesting, it's nesting in the woods. Soggy yeah. in the woods. Some, some squirrel got it and you know <laughs> ripped it apart and whatever. So yeah. Wow, we should you know we should go on an adventure to find no, this no, no, baseball. No, 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 no. It's, no? it's probably no. No, it's it's compost. <laughs> <laughs> um, you were uh, telling me a story before we started recording about a, a, a caravan. You and Nuxi uh, and, and yeah. Marty. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Well, back back in the early days, uh, we took when when we went on the caravan, we had one bus and we just circled. Right. We went, we went, we circled Cincinnati. You know, we go to Louisville and uh, Lexington, and then somewhere in West Virginia, and then Columbus, and then Dayton, and then Indianapolis, and and this caravan. Uh, you know, we usually got two or three guys to go, uh, but. We're on the last leg. Uh, we're going to Lowell or Lexington, and that's our last uh, last stop. And it's just Marty, Joe, and myself. And we were, you know, we were getting kind of long in the tooth, I guess, on the trip. <laughs> we were great to be winding it down, and you know, we probably had a couple cocktails uh, on that last trip. And so we go to to uh, I think it was the what was that Campbell House maybe. I think it was a Campbell House where we had our last stop. And uh, Marty gets up there and talks. And Joe gets up there and talks, and then they bring me up. And the first thing I did is I put the microphone behind me, and I farted <laughs> into the microphone. I thought Nuxie was going to drop. <laughs> he just couldn't believe I did it, you know. Uh, but, again, that was our last stop. We had been four days just traveling everywhere. And We're talking right into the mic? Right into the mic. I stuck it right there near my, my derriere and, and farted into the microphone. So. <laughs> and did they have to speak into that? No, segment? I got a nice chuckle out of it, you know. I, I just I just remember Nuxie's, you know. You ever seen uh, Nuxie laugh? Oh, yeah. You know, it yeah. just that's what he did. You know, Marty yeah. was, you know, I think Marty chuckled a little bit too. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I was, I was probably feeling pretty good by then so yeah when oh boy how much it just makes you miss nuxie even more you know when you oh. think about it laughing like that oh well i can tell you this joe nuxall we were uh we were in plant city and uh it was a day game and i don't know if i, I don't think i was pitching or i might have pitched the first you know few innings and i was still in the clubhouse and nuxie said hey you want to go get nine holes in over at walden lake and i said yeah sure so we, we grabbed some beers and and we went out there, and then we got to the uh, the eighth hole of the day, and it was a par three, and its houses all on the left side. You know, I get up there and hit a shot. I don't think I hit it on the green, but I hit it somewhere near the green. And uh, Nuxie gets up there and slices one out of bounds. Puts another one down, slices it out of bounds. Third one, slices it out of bounds. Then he says a few choice words, and he throws his club. Well, he throws it up in these pine trees, and they have that, 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 grass sawgrass stuff that hangs right. down whatever you call that moss yeah well it gets stuck up there now he's really mad <laughs> he goes to his bag and he throws every single club at that club hanging up there and doesn't hit it one time you know and i'm sitting on the bench right there on the tee box and i'm just kind of watching you know and after the last toss he throws and it doesn't hit it you know and he kind of looks at me and i just you know i give him a little smirk you know whatever and he, he just starts laughing he comes down we sit there and we drink a beer. <laughs> and then as soon as we get done with the beer, he walks over, grabs one club, throws it up there, hits a club, it comes down. And we're done. And we're done. <laughs> but it was for about uh, a 10-minute tirade. It was very, very oh. enjoyable. You he know? had some legendary tirades. Oh, yeah. I mean, everyone, he's known as, you know, one of the nicest guys you ever meet. Well, I heard he was a, he was ornery when he was a player. Oh, you know? yeah, yeah. 
You know, absolutely. I, I don't know if he tore up any lockers or anything, but I know mm -hmm. that he really had a temper. You know, because yeah. I remember talking to Donzetta about it every now and then. And right. she'd, we had some stories. Oh, yeah, he gets mad. He gets <laughs> mad all the time. <laughs> but he was wonderful. I mean, he had this yeah. golf tournament out there, and I used to love to play in that tournament. And uh, But he was, you know, he, he meant a lot. Because, you know, if you had a bad game, he was the first guy there to yep. talk to you, console you, bring you a beer. Uh, the night of my perfect game, I'll tell you this story, Okay. Because, you know, it was a privilege to be on Star of the Game with Nuxie. Yeah. You know, if you had a good game, Love and you, star get, of the oh, game. Oh. you get to be Star of the Game. So we had the celebration after the perfect game. Danny Jackson came out, and I sprayed the fans and stuff. And I started walking in behind home plate, you know, in the tunnel to get to the to clubhouse. And I see Nuxie coming out. You know, he's got two Budweiser's in his hand and his scorebook. And uh, and that's back awesome. Then, Hold you, on. Yeah. He had two Budweisers. You can see in that, though, can't the, you? Yes. That's yeah. Right. I mean, I love that. He had two Budweisers in his big giant hands and a scorebook. Yeah. Well, I. I that's Nuxy. Yeah. Exactly. So anyway, instead of going out or going underneath to meet him, I just stopped and waited for him. Well, if you remember, you had they had a big concrete pillar. Yeah. That you had to duck underneath to get out. Right. Well, he forgot about it. He went to shake my hand and just headbutted that concrete <laughs> pillar, and it knocked him right on his ass. <laughs> <laughs> but he was still laughing, you know. It was it was so funny, and then we went out there and cracked open the beers and talked about the game. And uh, but again, I just you know I was around him for a lot of things. And if I if I may, he probably showed me how to deal with the public and and yeah. be in those public atmospheres mm -hmm. and how to handle uh, fans and and people in general. Uh, and I learned a lot from him in, in that regard because I, I I I do take pride when I go out into the public and do things. You know, I, I try to treat them as as I would right. like to be treated. So, but uh, he was awesome. Wow, I was born in the wrong era because I would love to meet players after the game with a couple of Budweisers. Oh, well, I don't know if he ever brought a Budweiser ever again, but I know he brought me a Budweiser that, that night. night. Well, so. you deserved it that yeah. night. Oh, but, yeah. Uh, yeah, he was great. That That's tremendous. Well, hey, uh, I, I appreciate the visit, man. Uh, we're going to have to do this again sometime if this, uh, this was very close to a perfect podcast. Well, it's my first podcast, and it, and, it, and I'm glad it went well, and, I, and I'm... <laughs> Thank you for asking me. Uh, oh no, my it's pleasure. Great Kidding to me? share share some stories and uh, some things that took place in in my career that went like in a blink of an eye. Yeah, you know? and I, I I remember there's a guy named Dan Foster. He runs the Major League Baseball Alumni Association, and the one thing that just resonates with me, he said, "You will be a former player a hell of a lot longer than you will be a player." And no I do doubt about that. that. So. Yep. Well, thank but, you for having me on here, James. No, thank you. Uh, we'll do it again because I know you got some more stories to tell, so we'll have to cue those up uh, at a later date. Okay. You All got right. it. Tom Browning, appreciate it. Thank you. Man, I would have loved to have been there the day that Nuxie was trying to get his club out of a tree. I mean, I could just picture it, having been around Nuxie, and, <laughs> and then just sitting down and having a beer and going back at it and finally getting the club down. That is awesome. Not a day goes by. We don't miss the old left-hander. And we really thank Tom Browning for the visit. Uh, he's a terrific interview. We're glad we broke that podcast bubble with him. Uh, I will always be his first. How special is that? Thank you very much. And, you know, once we got done recording, I'm like, man, there were so many things I didn't talk to him about. So we'll uh, hopefully have him back. And uh, who knows who's going to be on this podcast. Marty Brenman will make his return we look forward uh, to that as well, and uh, who knows who's down the line. But once again, we thank you for helping this grow. We thank you for subscribing. Again, spread the word on this, and follow along on Instagram and Twitter at TV. For now, we will sign off. Goodbye, podcast world, 
And thanks again for listening here on the Gym Day Podcast.